Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Adultery and the Kingdom. In the Old Testament, God promised to make a new covenant with His people, in which He would write His law not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their hearts. In Jesus, God came near. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began bringing the law near. He did so by peeling away the accretions of the scribes and Pharisees, which were obscuring and undermining the law, and by reacquainting the people with what God intended in the first place. These particular remarks about adultery, Jesus addresses to men only, not because adultery only concerns men, but because the scribes and Pharisees had not only reduced adultery to physical sexual infidelity in marriage, but had also made it quite easy for men to divorce their wives for most any fault, real or imagined. In contrast with this perverse picture of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus makes it clear that God expects a fierce fidelity in husbands for their wives, a fierce fidelity that Jesus himself models in his single-hearted devotion to his bride, the church. And behind this fierce fidelity is not a stoic God, but a God who promises us that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. As G.K. Chesterton said, No restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself. Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. I hope this sermon will help provoke you to wonder at the goodness and fierce fidelity of God toward us, and to pursue a deep gratitude and a fierce fidelity toward God and toward your own spouse. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning, we are continuing our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are near the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we will continue uh, consider this morning what Jesus has to say about adultery. We will be considering Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is the Word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let us pray. God and Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we pray that by the Spirit you would open your word to us. That it would, we would understand it. That we would believe it. And that it would shape us in the image of Christ. 
that we would delight in your will and be to the praise of the glory of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God promised in the Old Testament that he was going to give a new covenant. Because the problem with the Old Covenant, as he says in Jeremiah 31, was that his people didn't keep it. Because the law was outside of their hearts. And God promised to give a new covenant in which he would bring the law inside their hearts. He would write the law on their hearts. And we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus beginning the fulfillment of that promise. In Jesus, God has come near. And he is bringing the law of the covenant near. The scribes and the Pharisees who talked incessantly of the law and boasted basically of being the true keepers of the flame, the true uh, representatives and teachers of the law, the true keepers of the law, actually pushed the law distant and concealed it. They covered it up with their traditions, which, as Jesus will later say in the Gospel of Matthew, actually have the effect of thwarting God's purposes. Now, Jesus is undoing all of that. But in doing so, it's important for us to remember that Jesus here is not giving a theological lecture. He's not talking to seminary students. He's talking to real people who are living real life. He's talking to uh, uh, those who are in uh, God's covenant people, those who are married, those who are dealing with all the issues of marriage, those who are, have children, those who have jobs, those who have, pay taxes, actually a much more oppressive tax regime at that time, those who live in an unfair world, those who live in a hard world. Those are the people that Jesus is talking to, for those are the ones that Jesus is calling to be his disciples. And so he's talking here to real people who are living real life, and he's talking to them about real life. He's talking to them about what they need to do, how they need to change their thinking, how they need to change in the whole way that they perceive life, the way that they need to change, the way they need to perceive marriage, the way they need to think about their wives differently than they do, or their husbands, or their children, the way they need to think about all these things, the way that they need to be different people in order to experience the life of the kingdom of heaven and to be its ambassadors. To be the ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying to be Jesus' true disciples, they need to be people who know what kingdom life feels like, what it is like. They need to be people who are living it out. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And so it's, it's astounding that Jesus speaking to real people about real life, about real issues, about real problems, about real changes they need to make. The first two things that he brings up to them are murder and adultery. Two things Two sins that we would not think would be a particularly big problem in Israel. And by the standard of the scribes and Pharisees, they weren't big problems. There wasn't a lot of drive-by gang shootings in Israel in that day, I don't think. And there probably wasn't a lot of outright adultery, at least the way that the scribes and Pharisees were defining it. But by the standard of God's law, by the standard of his original intentions in the law, 
of the behavior and the thought forms that God was trying to avoid in the law, murder and adultery were huge problems among God's people. And I think if we're honest, when we take a real look at God's word, we'd have to admit that murder and adultery continue to be big problems in the church of Jesus Christ today. Murder and adultery, you see, the way that God defined them, they were the camels that the scribes and the Pharisees were swallowing while they were busy straining at gnats. While they're busy tithing the spice rack, murder and adultery, particularly the, the forms of it that are in the heart that lead to all kinds of lesser forms of bleeding out the life of our neighbor, or heart forms of infidelity are going on rampantly. So Jesus is calling all of that to mind when he says twice in this passage, you have heard that it was said. He says the first time in verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And then in verse 32, he says again, furthermore, it has been said Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in verse 27, Jesus, of course, is quoting there the Ten, Commandment, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and that is the Seventh Commandment against adultery. And then in verse 32, he is quoting Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, where Moses says that a man who is putting uh, away his wife must give her a certi- certificate of divorce. Now, in alluding to these, Jesus doesn't have to spell it out because everybody's going to know when he's talking about when he brings it up. He doesn't have to contextualize it because the context was already there. Now, it's not there for us, so we need to call to mind the context. He's calling to mind everybody there automatically what the current reigning teaching on these issues was from the scribes and Pharisees because they're the true keepers of the flame, right? They're the guardians of the law. They sit, and they sit in Moses' seat, right? They're the ones telling us what it really means, and they're the ones living out uh, what it really means to live it out. And so that's what everybody is going to think. So he's not just calling to mind the law. Jesus is calling to mind the popular conservative, and it's important to remember that, the popular conservative application of the commandment, which focused on the one hand on physical infidelity. So that's adultery, physical infidelity, physically cheating on your wife, cheating on your husband. And then on the other hand, he's uh, calling to mind the reigning interpretation of the provision in Deuteronomy chapter 24 for divorce, which was quite liberal in permitting husbands to divorce their wives if they found fault with them as long as they gave them a certificate of Divorce. There were two schools of thought among the scribes and Pharisees at that time. One school of thought said this is limiting grounds for divorce only to sexual immorality. But there was another liberal school of thought that said, no, it can be for anything, any fault that the husband finds, even burning of toast. If the wife burns the husband's toast. That is sufficient grounds for divorce. And obviously, that school of thought had a great deal of traction in Israel at the time. And this was considered to be conservatives. 
See, the liberals, the Sadducees, aren't even bothering with this stuff at all. They're not even bothering making a pretext for what they want to do. The ones who need a pretext for what they want to do is the conservatives. Just like today, right? If we're conservatives, if we're evangelicals, and we want to do what we want to do, we've got to come up with a Bible verse that says we can do it, right? And that is exactly what was going on with the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus is calling that to mind. And then he says twice, once in verse 28 and once in verse 32, but I say to you, I say to you. Now, it's important for us to remember that when Jesus goes on and, and tells us what he's saying, he's not superseding the commandment of God's law with some new, higher spiritual standard that he's come up with, which is the typical evangelical way of understanding this. We're not going to get what Jesus is saying to us today if we think he's got this new spiritualized, new, higher standard, and that's what he's doing, because when we're thinking about it in that way, then we don't know exactly what to do with it. We tend to take it and run it uh, into some kind of a, a, a... really hard-drawn contrast between the law and the gospel. Um, We tend to see it as um, he's either just trying to show people that they can't keep the law, they can't save themselves, we'll run to the old works versus grace thing. That's always safe, right? We We know that one. We can always throw it over in that category and explain it very easily. Or we can run this into some form of extreme pietism, by which we will have to basically disconnect ourselves from real life to live this new spiritual higher standard that Jesus has come up with, or we have to push it off into the future and relegate it to heaven and say, this well, in the perfect world, after the resurrection, when all sin is gone, oh, this is the new standard that will apply. But until then, hey, we've got to live in the real world. Nice thought, beautiful words, nice to meditate on. One day, won't it be nice? Well, none of those is what's going on here. Because what Jesus is doing, notice he's not giving a command But when he says, but I say to you. He's giving an indicative. He's describing something. He's stating facts. And what he's stating is, let me tell you what the law really says. Let me tell you what God really meant from the beginning. Let me tell you what he intended. Let me take a hammer and chisel and knock all these, this rust and these barnacles off the law that the scribes and Pharisees have, have covered it with so that you can really see it. So the first thing he does in verse 28, he says, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not a command. It's just a fact. The sun comes up in the east. That's a fact. A man who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a fact. And so what Jesus does here is he collates the seventh commandment forbidding adultery with the tenth commandment forbidding covetousness. And what is covetousness? Where, where, Where does that apply? Adultery is something you can do physically, right? But where can you covet it? Can you covet with your hand? Can you covet with your legs? Can you covet with your mouth? No, there's only one thing you can covet with, and that's your heart. 
coveting desire. You want something. You want something you don't have. You want something God has not given to you. It applies potentially to anything, but it applies only and always to the heart. And as James says, look, the commandments are not like separate panes of glass. They're not like separate windows. And so you can, you can throw a rock through this one and break it, but not break the other ones. He says it's like one big plate glass, beautiful stained glass, beautiful priceless window. And if you throw a rock with it, it doesn't matter where you hit it. In the middle, a little to the right, a little to the left, down the bottom right corner, up. It doesn't matter where you hit it. You break it, you've broken it. And so he collates the seventh commandment with the tenth commandment and says, Look, if you're desiring something God has not given you, like your neighbor's wife, if you're lusting for her, You've broken both the Ten Commandments and you have broken the Seventh Commandment because that's where the Seventh Commandment starts, is what is going on in the heart. Secondly, down in verse 32, where Jesus says, But I say to you, here he's talking about divorce, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except for sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So with regard to divorce here, Jesus is calling the people back to the standard of God's creational design. Later on in his ministry, he'll do this in a lot more detail, Matthew chapter 19. But he's calling them back here to God's original creational design as well as God's testimony in Scripture. For example, Malachi, where God says, I hate divorce. You know, that's there too. That's there along with Deuteronomy 24, which talks about certificate of divorce. But the Pharisees and scribes here are, are putting on blinders and pushing aside the context of Deuteronomy 24 and turning it into something that it wasn't intended to be. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus spells this out in more detail, he's going to say that Moses' command for a certificate of divorce was not an endorsement of divorce, but rather was a remediation of divorce. The command was given because of the hardness of men's hearts. In other words, in spite of God's creational design and his command in the law, Men were, in fact, putting their wives away. They're just putting them out. And it's not even a divorce. There's no legal proceeding. They're just putting them out. They're saying, leave. Get out. Leave. And, of course, in that day, um, what's she going to do? It, It put a woman... In a very desperate situation where she either needed to remarry unless her father was wealthy and she could go back to her father's house uh, or unless she had independent funds herself. She's either forced to very quickly seek to remarry or she's going to face a lot of pressure to turn to prostitution or something like that just to survive. So really, really a cruel act, really a cruel act. So men are just putting their wives out. 
And so the, the command in Deuteronomy 24 for a legal proceeding and the issuance of a certificate of divorce was not intended as a get-out-of-marriage-easy card for the men. It was intended to do two things. Number one, to slow the whole thing down. So the guy can't just get mad and do this in a fit of anger. It has to go through a process. But more importantly, it was intended as a declaration of innocence for the woman. Because otherwise, if the woman is simply put out and sent out and turned away, everybody is going to assume that she is guilty of sexual sin, right? Or even if they don't affirmatively assume that, they're not going to know. Did she or didn't she? Who's going to have anything to do with her? No one. The certificate of divorce, in addition to slowing everything down, proved that the woman was innocent. It was her proof that she was not guilty of any kind of sexual immorality. That was the intent of Deuteronomy 24. Not to make it easier, but to make it harder. Not to give him a get-out-of-marriage-easy card, but to give her a proof-of-innocence card. But the scribes and Pharisees had turned this into a get-out-of-marriage-easy card for the men. That's how it was being used, and that is what Jesus is correcting. He is standing on its head. They're standing on its head of the law. That's what Jesus is doing here. So he says that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for any, uh, sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Now, sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneos. It's the word that we get pornography from or uh, a for, fornicaia, fornication from. And it can refer to a range of sexual sins, adultery, incest, fornication, prostitution, all of these things. And, and it has what is in view from God's creational design is some kind of act which by its nature destroys the marital union. Apart from that, the marital union must, con must continue. Because the Bible says what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It's not just a covenant between people. Marriage is something that God does. Yes, do we do it? Yes, God works through a ritual. That's the way God works from the beginning. He sets up rituals. He sets up a tree of life. What's that? That's a ritual. Is that, is that fruit got some kind of special juice in it that's going to make you live forever? No, it doesn't. What it is, though, is a ritual that God sets up through which he works. This is the way God works. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same kind of thing. God works through ritual, so marriage is a ritual. Are we involved? Yes, we're involved. Is the church involved? Yes, the church is involved. Is the state involved as a witness? Yes, they are. But ultimately, it's God who joins the two and makes them one. He works through things that we do. He works through the oath. He works through the rings. He works through the, through the words, all of these things. But this union, this one flesh union that God produces is not contained in any of those elements. It's not in the words. It's not in the oaths. It's not in the unity candle. It's not in the ring. It's not in any of those things. And yet God is pleased to work through all of those things to create something that did not exist before. And that's a union. 
Now, we don't have the power to create things that don't exist. Only God can bring something out of nothing, right? These two people who are going to get married, their identities are going to change. Their identity was one thing before. They're two individuals. Now they're going to be one. Their identity is going to change. Now, only God can do that. We can't change our identity. We like to think that we can. That's the whole postmodern uh, uh, deception that we can be whoever we want to be. We can change as many times as we want. We can morph into many different realities as we want to morph into. But that's all of a lie. You see that. You see it preeminently with different artists. It was real big with Madonna and, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, like a version. Right. Right, Madonna. We see that's the point. That's the postmodern point. I can be a slut today and a virgin tomorrow if I want to. And it's all been picked up now by Lady Gaga, who's basically the second coming of Madonna. But this is, this is the whole thing, that we, we can become who we want. But the God says, no, only he can do this. Right and wrong are going to fundamentally change for this couple when they're married. Before, it's wrong for them to come together sexually. Very wrong. After, it's going to be very wrong if they don't. Now, we don't have the power to change right and wrong. Only God has the power to change right and wrong. Only God has the power to change our identity. And that's what Jesus is saying. God has created this union. And when you look at the language of Malachi, where God says, I hate divorce, it speaks there of why God creates them one. In other words, why does God make the union? And it says he desires godly seed. In other words, children raised up to God are the fruit of this union that God makes. And it needs to be a union. I mean, even secular psychologists, even secular criminologists, even secular scholars in the juvenile justice field know. Now, they, it's amazing how they can see so much and still not get it. But they know and they will tell you that what really feeds the souls of children even more than the love of the parents directly to the children is the love of the parents for one another. When mom and dad love one another and the kids can see that, their hearts just fill up. Why is that? Because God made it this way. Because the children are to be the product of the love to start with. And then, so their whole growth, their whole nurture is to be a product of that love. That is the nature of marriage, something that God has joined together. Now, if one of the spouses commits sexual immorality, that by its nature strikes at the union. And so that creates then a permissible grounds for dissolving the union, which is and that would be a permissible ground for divorce. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 points out another ground that would fundamentally strike at the whole nature of the union and therefore permit for a, uh, a, a, a disillusion of the union. And that would be if he said, if you have a Christian, well, you have two people married. You have two people who are married, they're unbelievers, one of them becomes a Christian. Okay, So now you have a believer married with an unbeliever. How strong is this union? How much does it go back to God's original design? So much so that, that, that Paul says to the believer, you stay with 
the unbelieving spouse, even though they haven't come to faith. So you ultimately, deep down, you don't have a complete union there because you've been reunited and reconciled to God, the creator through Christ, his son. And the spouse doesn't. They're pagan. They believe other things. They live on a different value system. It's difficult. It was difficult before. Now it's more difficult. But Paul basically says they don't own marriage. It belongs to God, the God you worship. It belongs to him. He created it. He made it. And he's the only one who can save anybody anyway. So you stay. It's an act of faith that you stay in that union. Okay, to marry somebody who's an unbeliever is an act of unfaith. But to become a believer and to stay married with the unbeliever you married before is an act of faith. So, Jesus here is saying that to to dissolve the union of a marriage for anything other than that which strikes at the very heart of the marriage, which would be unfaithfulness, or Paul says, if the unbelieving spouse will not remain with the believer. If the unbelieving spouse says, you're a fruitcake, you've gone over the hill now, I'm done with you, I'm not going to live with you, and they leave, then Paul says, okay, that strikes at the very heart of the marriage too, and you don't have to remain with them, and you would be free to remarry uh, only in the Lord. Now, Jesus here, when he says... He says, so he says, if you divorce your wife except for sexual immorality or by implication, something else like desertion that really strikes at the very heart of the union as God made it, then you are causing your spouse to commit adultery. And so the main application for that day was men who were unrighteously, <coughs> excuse me, they were unrighteously uh, putting away their wives uh, and giving them a certificate of divorcement and feeling all righteous about it, Jesus says, you are causing her to commit adultery. Now, notice the rationale here, because this is important for us to get the next verse. What he's saying here is, you, husband, are responsible for her adultery. In other words, he's saying the union has not really been broken, but you're breaking it. And so she's then probably going to be joined to another husband, very likely. What Jesus is saying here is that she is not responsible for that, for that adultery. You are. You are causing her to be engaged in another union when the first one really has not been broken. And that helps us understand the next part of verse 32. Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I think here, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different opinions on this and what this means, but I think given the trajectory of Jesus' thought here, he's not saying that the woman who's been wrongfully divorced uh, is, is guilty of adultery. Okay, He's not saying that. He's saying the husband is. And furthermore, he's, he's not saying that the second husband is guilty of adultery for, for marrying her. He's saying the first husband is guilty for the whole thing. Because Jesus is trying to put a stop to this whole thing. He's not pushing this off onto the victim, who is the woman. He's not pushing this off onto her. 
He's not pushing it off onto another man who loves her when she's been victimized and takes her as a wife. He's putting all of it on the first husband who has uh, unrighteously divorced her. Now, that's, that's my understanding of it. There are many good Christians who have a, a different understanding of that. And so I'm not going to jump up and down on this and be dogmatic about it because it's difficult. But I think that the way I understand this is in keeping with the rationale, the intrinsic logic, and the trajectory of what Jesus is doing here. And I think some of the other interpretations, which would say, uh, which would be well-meaning, actually have the effect of turning on its head what Jesus is doing, because it pushes the guilt off onto the wronged party, off into the victim and somebody who would marry them. So anyway, I will leave that as that. But then let's let's look then at what Jesus is really trying to do, big picture here with both of these. Taking all of this together, what do we see? Well, Jesus, what he's really saying is that physical adultery, whether it's by sexual infidelity or whether it's by unrighteous divorce, is really the final fruit of a tree that starts with roots and trunks and stems and leaves first. Jesus wants to stop adultery from ever germinating. He wants to keep the adultery tree from ever germinating. He doesn't, he doesn't want to simply manage the fruit. So he focuses on the root. And when you think about it, when we, before we grab with our hands, we grab with our hearts. And the root of the adultery plant is really the same as the root of the murder plant. It's desire. Desire, lust, desire for something that we don't have and we want it. Somebody else has it. We don't have it. We want to eliminate the difference often by eliminating them, either destroying their life or maybe by killing them. It says in Proverbs 27, 20, hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Now, notice how those two things go together. Hell and destruction are never full. The eyes of man are never satisfied. Notice the connection between the eyes of man never being satisfied and hell and destruction never being full. There is a very definite connection. That's what drives hell. What fills hell? The eyes of man never being satisfied. That's what fills hell. Notice also here that Christ focuses on the men. He doesn't say a word to women here. Now, elsewhere he will. He will talk to women, but not here. Just like last week when he was talking about murder, he didn't talk to those who, have you been offended? How do you deal with it? How do you go deal with it? He only spoke to us in terms of, have we wronged other people? And I think Jesus is doing the same thing here. He wants to start at a particular point to change the way we think about this. Most commonly, the root of adultery is the desire of a man for a woman that God has not given him. He may be single, he may be married, but God has not given him that woman, and he desires her. And the scripture is clear that the man himself and no one else is responsible for the sin that is in his heart. 
It says in Proverbs chapter 6, the commandment is a lamp, the law is a light, the reproofs or instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. And listen to what he says. Okay, so far we've heard about there's an evil woman. And she's got a flattering tongue. Because the biggest thing when it comes to men and sex is not about sex. It's about ego. And that's where the flattery comes in. You're so big. You're so strong. All of that stuff. So we have this evil woman who's doing all this stuff. And where do the Proverbs go with that? This is where it goes. You, man, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. He doesn't go to the woman. He goes to the man. And he says, do not let your heart lust after her beauty. Don't allow that to happen. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, true, if it's a sin for a man to allow himself to lust after a woman God has not given him, then it is sin for a woman to dress or act in such a way that is reasonably likely to provoke such lust. And there are many women who know exactly how to do this, and there's a lot who do. But Jesus isn't talking to them here. He's talking to men. He's going to the bottom line. Do not let your heart Lust after her beauty. She's beautiful. She's got beauty. She's got looks. And she's flattering you. Jesus is saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it. Don't you believe it? Get your mind off of it. Turn your heart away. Don't let govern your heart. If that happens, it's not going to matter what this woman does. And you know... For there to be a supply of something, there has to be a demand. Men, take care of the demand and you will see the supply go down. Right? The supply of, of seductive, provocative, sexually, all of that kind of stuff that our society is rampant with. You really want to kill the supply? Kill the demand. Where do you kill the demand? In your heart. That's where you kill the demand. Now, this is where Jesus is going when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. His point is not, okay, it's your eye and your hand, so get rid of them. His point is, it's not your eye and it's not your hand. That's his point. His point is that men are very prone to make excuses. It's my eye, it's my hand, it's the other stuff, it's the girl, it was this, it was that. And Jesus is saying, okay, if it really is, then cut it off. Plug it out. Men are prone to make excuses. It's easy to do. They're often contributing factors. But Jesus does not let men off the hook. Jesus is saying, look, if you're lusting for a woman after in your heart, and there is something that's contributing to that, then get rid of it. If it's the picture on your computer... Get rid of it. If it's the girl on the billboard, don't look. Not saying go burn the billboard, you get arrested for that. He's saying don't look. Okay, you looked first time, you didn't know it was there. 
You looked. You didn't know. Now you know. Don't look the second time. Don't look the second time. And what about factors that we can't control? Like, yeah, there it is. It's like that happens a lot today. It's like, there she is. I'm just driving. I'm just here. I'm I'm just at the stoplight. And there's the crosswalk. And there she is. Okay. Well, remember what Martin Luther said. What's such a wonderfully earthy man. Martin Luther said, hey, guys, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head. But you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. You can't. You're not responsible for the birds that fly over our head. That happens. And sometimes birds do things when they fly over your head. Can't help that. All right. But you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. And the big problem that men have is with the nests in the hair. It takes time for the bird to build a nest in your hair, and you have to basically want it to do so. That's what you deal with. And ultimately, men, and this is our application here because Jesus is talking to men, and so I'm talking to men. Marital fidelity is not ultimately about denying yourself a pleasure. That's the way we think. That's the way Satan wants us to think. Marital fidelity is about indulging yourself in greater pleasure. It says in Psalm 16 that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, don't go Muslim on me here and start visioning 70 virgins. No, that's not what he's talking about. But at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. You heard in the reading this morning, the encouragement to husbands, let her breast satisfy you at all times. It's hard to make God a stoic God out of those kind of verses. It's about indulging yourself in a greater pleasure as God created it to be. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton says about this in his own wonderful way. He says, I could never get into the common murmur of the rising generation against monogamy. Because no restriction on sex... Seems so, uh, no restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself. Keeping to one woman is a small price to pay for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. And this is where God is really going with all of these things. We really deny ourselves the pleasure and the joy and happiness that God intends when we deviate from his design. And God created us for a monogamous relationship. And he did that. As soon as he made Adam, this is part of being the image of God. You don't even have to have male and female yet to be created for a monogamous relationship. He created us for a monogamous spiritual relationship with him. Because God is monogamous. He binds himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit bind themselves to one another's good and happiness in eternity. And they create us who they don't need and they bind themselves to our happiness and our good. And we're created for monogamy. 
Then God creates male and female for us to be joined together in marriage as a reflection of that great divine spiritual monogamy toward us. So you start seeing that contrary to popular opinion, marriage is not a subset of human sexuality. Human sexuality is a subset of marriage. Marriage is the baseline. Monogamy is the baseline. Then you have sex being added in as icing on the cake and the method by which God creates new images of him. Now, we need to remember here, men, I have to say this. Remember this. You will never do any of this apart from Christ. The ultimate husband. Christ, the man of fierce fidelity. Affirmative fidelity. Not a guy who's going around denying himself everything on this kind of defensive, oh, woe is me, I carry my cross. No, an affirmative, fierce fidelity. A fidelity that maintained faithfulness to us when we committed adultery against Him as a human race, came, became one of us, as part of His fierce fidelity, endured the greatest ultimate infidelity. He became one of us and we killed Him. We became, he became one of us, we rejected Him. And we did it nicely and neatly through a legal proceeding. And we framed him for our infidelity. And that's what he went to the cross for. Why? So that he might join us to himself again. Now that's fidelity. That is fierce fidelity. And he did it not only to do that, but he did that to make us faithful. To make us faithful. Now, men, it begins with you. And this is one of the things about the gospel and about God's word that is counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. If we just societally wanted to come together and decide who is going to be the guardians of faithfulness and fidelity and morality and home and hearth and all that, who are we going to make the guardians? Well, women (laughs) comes more naturally to them. That's not where Jesus goes. He says, you men, you are the guardians of morality. You are the guardians of faithfulness. And it starts in your heart. So when you make no provision for the flesh, which is what Paul says to do, what are you doing? Are you playing into behaviorism there that it's your environment that controls? No, you're acknowledging that it's the heart that's the issue. But if there are things in your environment that you can control that are affecting your heart, then you get rid of them and you be ruthless in doing so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.